0: This is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series.
1: Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership, and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ.
0: Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. everyone. Here we are with our guest, Jenny McGuera. Thank you for being on the show, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This episode, we are focused on innovation in education and how educational leaders can really support that work. With this in mind, we could not think of anyone better to have with us today than Jenny. TJ, can you please tell our audience a little
1: bit more? Sure thing, Joe. Our guest for this episode is Jenny McGuera. Jenny is the global head of education impact at Google, best-selling author of Courageous Adventures and the founder and president of the nonprofit Our Voice Alliance, whose mission is to elevate marginalized voices and perspectives to improve equity and empathy in education. Previously, she was the Chief Innovation Officer for CCSD62, the Digital Learning Coordinator for the Academy for Urban School Leadership, and a Chicago Public Schools teacher. A White House Champion for Change, Apple Distinguished Educator, Google Certified Innovator, and TEDx Speaker, Jenny works to improve education globally. She's also passionate about transforming professional learning, having served on the T. Te- technical working group for the U.S. Department of Education's National Educational Technology Plan, co-founding Playdate, and other conferences. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at M-S-M-A-G-I-E-R-A, and we hope you will do that. Okay, Jenny, we want to dive into this conversation on innovation, risk-taking, and how leaders can create a culture of support for these things. In your book, You refer to innovation as an island, somewhat of a mystical place that's tough to find, but where better and different coexist. Can you describe for us as we get started how leaders can support that journey of innovation and and support that type of environment coupled with high expectations and very clear goals in schools?
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, the reason why I first thought of it as an island is because uh, are you familiar with uh, the sociologist from the 60s, Dr. Um, Everett Rogers uh, uh, diffusion of innovation curve?
0: I am not. Nor am
2: I. Yeah, so it's it's a it's it's a fun bell curve. Um, So, you know, I'm a former math teacher, and I think all educators love some good data and some bell curves. But uh, Dr. Rogers uh, came up with this concept that you could that you could describe uh, a body of folks in any organization through this bell curve in terms of how willing they are to um, accept and embrace innovative new ideas and thinking. And so he breaks up uh, folks into this diffusion of innovation curve where that Top 16% of folks are your innovators and early adopters who are really like diving into the waters of, of new thinking and out of the box practices and that other 84% are early late majority and he uses the word laggards so folks who are just like nope not going to do it. You know, and and, and a lot of educators um, who were really embracing not just educational technology, but. Um, that that uh breaking the mold kind of concepts of how to approach teaching and learning, you would see them falling into a lot of those fr- um, a lot of those boxes, right? So that you know top 16% of folks who were trying things new um, were broken down even further into your innovators and early adopters, and your innovators were your top 2.5% according to Dr. Rogers. And um, I was in a really big school district at the time, Chicago Public Schools and a director of Education technology. Um, John Connolly first introduced this to me, talking about, you know, we have, you know, hundreds of schools, thousands of teachers, and he was really seeing that it was really only that top two and a half percent or so who are trying new things. So less than one per school building. And so a lot of us who were really trying to um, push boundaries and do new things felt isolated, felt alone. And the, the metaphor that kept coming to my mind was being alone on my own deserted island. It was a paradise, right? Like it had like crystal blue waters and beautiful waterfalls and rainbow unicorns and all the coconuts and pineapples you can eat. It was a great place, but I was all by myself um, and you know trying to survive alone. And so one of the things that I really tried to do was like help people be brave enough to make the journey across the seas to this new islands. Um, And as I was thinking about that, it got me to think about the metaphor of of ancient Polynesian explorers and how brave they must have been to, you know, you know, they looked from the shores of mainland China and Taiwan and saw like, I'm just going to go that way. I have no idea if there's anything out there, but I'm going to try it and try to convince some of my colleagues and fellow educators to take a dive from the best practices that they knew and loved from childhood to adulthood um, as a practitioner and and try something new with me felt a lot like trying to get someone to jump on a canoe that I made myself and sail into the Pacific Ocean. Um, so that's, that's really where all of those concepts came from.
0: And Jenny, can you describe some of your early success with that? Did they jump on that canoe and did they brave the waters? And if so, you know, what else did you do to support them?
2: not at first. A lot of people told me to take a hike. Um, You know, they went, you know, using the same metaphor from everything of like running away from me on the beach, holding onto the palm tree, or like actually trying to sabotage my canoe. And, um, you know, that, that manifested in many different ways. People, you know, going to my principal and saying like, hey, like she's, she's really, she's a troublemaker. You know, once she got those iPads, like she's so um, she's constantly stirring stuff up. She's like putting too much work on everyone else. She's she's showing out, she's doing this, she's doing that. Like there was a lot of negativity. And, and again, I felt alone on my Island and I, I wanted to give up but I saw how powerful it was for my students and how much they were thriving. I looped with my fourth graders to fifth graders the year that I went one-to-one. And um, for those students, uh, we had iPads at first and then we moved to Chromebooks. And I remember my students sitting uh, in front of that Chromebook, and I had this one young man who went from um, being in school-based problem-solving. We were doing response to intervention with him. We were about to like uh, put him through to consider does he need to have an IEP. He was like scoring in the lowest percentile on the state math tests, just really, really struggling. And that same year, within six months, of me approaching teaching and learning differently. It wasn't the technology. It was the way I was leveraging the technology to do better and more impactful teaching uh, movements with my young people. He went from scoring in the lowest percentile on the um, state test the previous uh, spring to the highest percentile that spring. And same teacher, same curriculum, Everything else was the same. So it was like truly a scientific experiment, right? Everything else was a constant, except my pedagogy changed as a result of having these newer and more powerful tools that pushed my thinking. And so I I really couldn't abandon it. So I went from like, it really helped me double down on like, this is best for young people. But I changed my approach with my colleagues instead of trying to pull. one of my friends, uh, Monique Chapman, says, you know, you can't, you can, you know, lead a horse to water, but you can't force him to drink, right? So she's like, it's our jobs as instructional coaches and school leaders to make the horse thirsty. So I was like, how am I going to make my colleagues thirsty for what I'm doing? So instead of trying to like force them into the boat and be like, get in the boat, that island's great, trust me, I'd start with the ailments that they were already facing. So I had this one colleague, who was constantly lamenting he had three classes of close to 40 students because we were overcrowded. And he was like, you know, just flooded with formative assessments every night. Every night he was grading, you know, he just was, he never had a chance to plan or iterate or or really be a thoughtful practitioner because all he was doing was just paperwork. And I said to him, I was like, what if I was able to tell you that you never had to grade another multiple choice um, you know, exit ticket again, that I could get you real-time data about your students from the minute that they took the assessment, and it would automatically magically uh, differentiate for them. And he was like, I would call you a witch. And I was like, all right, happy Halloween. Let's make this happen. So I let him use my Chromebooks um, for one period. It was the period I was on prep, and I set him up on Google Forms, and I used Google Forms branching logic, so that if they got the right answer, it took them to uh, a YouTube video where it, like, it helps them like try something harder. So like, based on the answer they chose, it took them to something else. Um, obviously, for those of us who are familiar with Google Forms, it spit the answers into a spreadsheet. This was before self-grading Google Forms existed. Now it would be even easier. But I set it up with conditional formatting so he could just have the spreadsheet open on his device and see it light up red, green, or yellow on his screen. And he sat there in awe. He was like, are you kidding me? He's like, I'm gonna go out and buy a bottle of wine tonight. I'm gonna like sit down with my husband tonight, have a glass of wine, like be a human being for the first time in my career because I'm not gonna have to grade 150 exit tickets. He was, he just couldn't believe it. And from then on, he was like, how do I apply to get these devices? How do I get Chromebooks into my classroom? This is amazing. So I realized, again, I was forcing my colleagues to go towards technology without thinking about their needs first. But when I paused and thought about the challenges that they were facing and repositioned the use of tech to solve their existing problems or to address them, then it became, you know, you couldn't, they couldn't get at it fast enough.
1: Great story, appreciate that. I do want to say, something almost always happens. That's a slightly a a bit strange when we do these interviews. And I do. And so I want to share this really quickly. I could reach for this book crossing the chasm (laughs) and in it is the curve. And so when you describe the curve and I'm, I'm showing it to the screen right now for the listeners, the curve, and just um, the innovators to the early adopters, to the early majority, late majority, and then laggards. And so Jeffrey Moore uses that for technology, for selling technology to cross the chasm for, for that. So just interesting that I could practically reach for this book, as you were describing that and me saying, I've never heard of it, but that's not true. Um, yeah. I just hadn't heard uh, that. It came from Dr. Rogers or didn't remember that. I, I want to go. So be because of like the connection with crossing the chasm and what you talked about with that individual teacher, And because every teacher has unique pain points, in this case, it was the formative assessments and the bag of stuff that he was taking home at the end of the night. I wonder, though, what you think about scaling that to the masses in terms of, all right, we got one teacher who's the innovator early adopter, and we got another person who sees how this could benefit them. But what if I have a thousand employees? We just talked to Dan Dominich and he talked about having 27,000 employees in his district. Like, what can you say about that type of scale in terms of getting people to the adoption phase?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, that's, that's why I, when I, I, so I work at Google now, as you mentioned. And um, even though I've only been a, a, a full-time Google employee for the past, you know, 15 months or so, I have been working with Google um, as Google adjacent for years, and three years prior to going to Google, I was supporting them in developing something that's now called the Google for Education Certified Coaching Program, uh, which is based on my book, actually. And the whole idea there is thinking about shifting that curve at scale, and you know, again, like using Jeffrey Moore's, like I, you know, as you know, like for those of you who aren't familiar, Jeffrey Moore basically took that um, that bell curve and put a chasm between that 16% and the 84% and his his whole concept is it's not actually easy to move from that that segment that uh, 32 or 34% called the uh, early majority um, to that next step, which is the early adopters. It's really hard to move from that one uh, percentile to the next. There's a chasm there. And we see that all the time. You see that in your, in your faculty, that you've got your people who move very easily, but then you have a lot of folks who are like, there, there's a mental block there. And again, I, I believe that mental block is deeply emotional in some ways, it's existential. You know, I remember thinking that when I first went one-to-one with devices, it wasn't easy for me either. I had to cross that chasm myself. I wasn't a born innovator. I was voluntold to write a grant to get to get one-to-one devices in my classroom. And when I did, I spent a lot of time frustrated. I, I remember there were tears from me, from my students, um, just feeling deeply frustrated and confused. And um, part of it for me was that I had for me, being an educator was so tied up in my identity of who I was. Like I tell this story about my uh, husband as an attorney and he would never talk about being an attorney outside of work. You you don't see him in a Starbucks. He's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I just ta- did a deposition yesterday. It was delightful. Um, but if I'm chatting with someone at Starbucks, I'm probably gonna bring up something about education because it's so built into my DNA. It's what I think about at night. And so when I was having to shift my entire identity in the classroom from being, you know, the, the body of knowledge and and running a lot of the things to releasing a lot of agency through technology to my students, it was a really hard identity shift for me to think about like what my new role and persona was. And so when you're shifting 20, 27,000 people who are all across that innovation curve, 84% of them are on the other side of the chasm. You have to really address the social emotional comfort of these educators to, to feel to the, to address the anxiety and worry and the fact that it it's going to mess with the identity and how how they see themselves in the classroom. And again, I think the best way to do that is start with what their needs are. So don't start with, we need technology because it's more efficient, it's more effective, research shows, kids want it, we have it. We got a grant from the government and we bought all these devices. Now we have to use them. Um, Don't start with that. Start with like, what are your challenges? And then give them the support and professional learning to see how technology is actually a vehicle to relieve stress and to clear their plates, So it's not another additive, it's actually clearing their plates. And so the Google Certified Coach Program is a year long program posited to do that at scale, to create a coaching system that starts with the emotions, the social emotional wellness, the identities of the educators, unearth what their biggest challenges are and couch technology as a supporting vehicle to address those challenges and help clear those plates.
0: Jenny, I think that's very powerful. We really advocate for that approach with students, especially when they're um, struggling and, and they're trying to shift and grow. And so linking that to adults and just as a general thought around human beings. I love how you tie that though with your identity and who you are. So it's not resistance for resistance sake. A lot of that resistance is due to the fact that you're changing who I am and maybe a lot of what I hold as belief. So it's very powerful, um, sentiment on your part. If you will in mind, we would like to shift gears a, a little bit. And we've already mentioned a couple people here. Um, uber impressed with the fact that you, you are familiar with the chasm and can talk about it at will. I know TJ right now is is thrilled because he's been talking about that book for a week straight now as he picked it up. So I'm sure uh, he's utterly impressed as I, as I am as well. Who is one person or group um, who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration and where could we find them?
2: Gosh, there's so many people who I'm inspired by. I think it depends on on what you're looking for. Um, when it comes to um, really thinking about mindset shifts and um, getting people on board with things that are hard, I actually really love the book Switch by Dan and Chip Heath. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I, I know I'm cheating. You asked me for one person and I said two, but they're brothers, I think. So maybe that they, uh, they're either brothers or they just go, they have the same last name and wrote a book together, but um, I love Switch. It's the whole title. I think a switch of uh, creating change when change is hard or something along those lines. It's a great book. It's an easy read. It's all short stories, but it's all about the power of like using the humanity of people and the psychology to to work towards change, which I get, as you named, I, I'm really about double clicking on the humanity and the peopleness of people to to create systemic change rather than just like manufacturing it through systems and structures. I think it's a little bit of both, a little of art and science. Um, but Dan and Chip Heath have influenced me a ton. I've never met them. I would love, they're like one of those dinner party people if you're playing that game, I'd love to um, you know, sh- share, a, share a pizza with, if you will. But um, I have reread that book so many times and every time I reread it, I, I gain something as a leader, as an educator, as a human being. I sometimes use it on my daughter and husband. So I would definitely recommend it as something to go towards for inspiration.
1: Thank you for that. I do have a bit of a follow-up question on a book like, um, switch for an educator. And, and we, we love Dan and Chip Heath. So there's a great recommendation and you're, you're fully welcome to go and give us one name, two names, three names. We we do the one thing because we want to distill down and we did just finish upstream by Dan Heath, um, as well, which is an interesting book about thinking about problems, but how do you come across a book like that? Like, uh, I'm, I'm interested in knowing like is that on a book list that you review or did you just do your own research and it popped up what what, what brings you as an educator to a book like uh, switch
2: you know, Professional networks. So in that case, it was my, my life and professional mentor, Amy Rome, who uh, she saw me moving into, I read that, you know, gosh, maybe a decade ago, or I don't remember how long, but I was, I was a younger educator at the time. And um, she was my director at a network of schools here in Chicago and, and said like, Hey, you're taking on a lot more leadership. You're having to create systemic change you want to do a book club with me and i said yeah and so we read it together and i think i'm really a big proponent of being a mentor to others but also seeking mentors um and and not just informal mentors but actually going to someone and saying like hey tj i really admire you I'm wondering, like, would you be cool if we grabbed a virtual coffee like once a month and I could just pick your brain and bring ideas and tell you what I'm working on? So I'm, I am I do that for um, many people now I've offered or have been asked. And conversely, I have a couple mentors in a couple of different places. I, I do a lot of work in um, diversity, equity and inclusion. So I have some mentors who help me think about how how I show up in that space, how I acknowledge my own privilege, how I deal with um, my own intersectional identity as a woman, as an Asian American, as a mother, as a professional, and help me grapple with all of that. I have a leadership mentor, I have a parenting mentor, so really looking for um, that mentor, mentor, men being a mentee and a mentor on both sides give you a diversity of uh, professional learning networks. And then you learn about books, about podcasts, about resources, or just about concepts that you might not organically find yourself through your you know, Google newsfeed or what have you. Um, and, and it's just, it's so important to, to kind of have those types of conversations. And I will say a lot of the books and resources I found, I've gotten from mentees. So mentoring is a learning experience for the mentor as well.
1: That was a phenomenal answer. And you are speaking our language there. We have written extensively about mentoring actually as both an engagement in the culture strategy and a a retention strategy. So that's great advice for listeners. Professional network, be a mentor and get a a mentor. Um, And it leads us into our next question. What's one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life?
2: Say that one more time.
1: What's one what's one thing that that you believe people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? And and the segue there for me was really the mentoring thing. I think is a great answer to that, but do you have a another thing that you would say, you know, plug yeah. this into your day-to-day?
2: I would say two things, one that will help you and one that will help others. I think that one thing that you can do to help yourself is block at least one block of your day for something that has nothing to do with work that makes you happy and put it on your work calendar and make it, make it you can make it visible. Like obviously, like if, I don't know what everyone's job situation is, like I don't wanna get anyone in trouble, but find a time where you're allowed to have flexibility in your schedule if you're a classroom teacher like don't do it during your third period math class (laughs) but um you know when whenever you do have flexibility in your in your schedule if it's before or after school if you're allowed to have flexibility during a math or a prep period if you're in a role where you don't have to like have specific report clock in clock out times block in some time it could be 20 minutes 30 minutes an hour and it could be anything from taking a walk taking a nap reading a book um, for me, what I have blocked on my calendar every day because I don't have a typical schedule. I, I, I'm in a global uh, role so I, I you know I'm up late talking to Singapore or up early talking to Australia. and um, so I block my dinner time. I block um, an hour and a half every day on my work calendar from 5:30 uh, to 7. And it says visibly for my boss, uh, my direct reports on my so my team, everyone else, um, that I am picking up my daughter, eating dinner with her, and giving her a bath and putting her to bed. And it says that on my work calendar. Because, you know, that, that 90 minutes is really important to me. I want to be the one to pick her up from school. I want to be the one to sit, like, well, and my husband, too. We sit down, we eat dinner at the dinner table, and I read her her book and give her a bath and put her to bed. I want I want that for myself and it makes me a better person and a better worker. I think I'm a better Googler for it because then if I need to go back to work at 730 or 701, um, I'm not, I'm not feeling a kind of way because I got that time with my daughter. Um, But the other thing that that also does is the part two. So that was for yourself, block that time for yourself. The thing that it gives to others is I, I could just put it on my calendar as busy or no meetings but i put it as publicly picking up my daughter eating dinner with her giving her a bath cuz i'm modeling balance i want the i want the 15 people on my team to see that the person who's managing them practices balance and prioritizes and validates and values wellness in a personal life outside of google and so the more that we normalize that and make it acceptable for everyone to see, um, the better we're all going to be as people. And I think the better we are going to be as practitioners, as educators, as professionals, because we're we're not going to be burning the candle at both ends and we'll be able to show up more fully as our whole selves in the time it is time to work.
0: Jenny, have you always been that confident in approaching your workday like that or is that something that has evolved over time because we we hear very often like especially when you're advancing in your career and doing things it should be done with almost reckless abandonment so you hear balance but what you'll hear all people say right then a second a sentence later that yeah but there are seasons and maybe you're in a season in which you're pushing extra extremely hard I gotta say, it's very impressive for you to be that transparent, but then also to say, like, with your boss, they know. And so, has that come natural to you, or is that just over time something you learned and said, you know what, this is just important to me?
2: It absolutely did not come uh, naturally to me. Um, I had great anxiety the first time I did it, and um, it it was it was really hard. And you're right, I you know, as a young professional. Um, I, I had a constant uh, performance, like I was constant I had performance anxiety, and I had um, imposter syndrome, and I was constantly worried that folks would find out that I wasn't good enough. I became a CTO pretty young of a school district, and everyone else on cabinet was was um had a lot more chronological years on me and a lot more job experience. And so I felt like I had to work harder, longer and uh, deliver more to prove that I'd earned my seat literally at the board table. Um, I was constantly afraid that they were under, um, just, just under, not undervaluing, but like just believing things that I said were like not as thoughtful or not as uh, valued as everyone else at the table. With that being said, as I reflect on it, my anxiety and hardworking and like, I think that came through more than the outcome. I think they could see my anxiety. They could see my nervousness that it was very clear. I wasn't confident and that did more to undermine my ability to stand up tall and be um, shoulder to shoulder with the other leaders on my team um, than my age. And what I did notice is that the other, in retrospect and upon reflection, is that my colleagues did hold a lot more balance and a lot more barrier, and that my overworking and frenetic energy was actually more damaging to our relationship than had I just practiced balance. And so I'm not saying to um, anyone in their career, try and work less, or don't work as hard, or don't deliver as much. The world needs passionate educators who wake up at three in the morning and come up with a brilliant idea to reach that young person or, um, you know, that education leader who's, you know, staying late at a board meeting to fight for something for their school district. We we need those people. But I think there needs to be balance too. So it's, I know I'm gonna be at the board meeting till midnight tonight. So I'm gonna leave work today right at 3.30 and go home and go for a run and see my wife and, you know, like put my kids to bed and then get back to the office at six and then stay there for the next six or seven hours. So th- it comes with like a give and a get. And I think I didn't realize the give and the get. I was just giving, I was just giving. And I and I got really close to burning out. And so as a mentor, I'm advising um, young folks to think about the deliverables and not, um, not so much, like trying to look like you're working hard so saying like what are you actually trying to achieve here and what is the value that you're bringing to your team to your classroom to your system and how can you look at your process to work smarter and not harder how are you collaborating with others or are you being that rock star are you living on your island and doing everything by yourself or are you bringing people to your island working collaboratively and taking taking a beach break you know with their coconut so it's it's not easy it's really really hard to to come to that but i think again the way that those of us who are more seasoned leaders in our career can support these folks who are more emerging leaders or starting their career is if we're modeling it more overtly then it's going to make it easier for them to think it's okay to do it because one of the things is my colleagues on cabinet weren't Open with their balance. Like I figured it out over time as I got to know them, as I saw, you know, beneath the uh, lifted the veil, if you will. But they weren't putting on their public calendars, like going home to see my wife or like going for a run. They just were not there. And for all I knew, they were like doing classroom walkthroughs or meeting with the mayor. Um, It took time for me to like, you know, be somewhere with them and be like, oh, and they were like, yeah, yeah, I just saw Jan. I'm like, oh, you were at home just now. I didn't know that was okay to do. So again, if we're transparent with, I wish they had been transparent, more transparent with me. Not that I think they were hiding it. I just think it's the culture not to like put that on the forefront, but that's really damaging because we're setting unrealistic expectations for, for others.
0: Well, thank you, Jenny. I, I, one, I truly appreciate your candor and, and pulling back the veil a little bit for our audience and being vulnerable there. I agree 100%. It's not in the culture to, to, you know, really express what you're doing and the importance of that personal side of our lives. So thank you. I think that'll be very reassuring. To a lot of people who just need to hear it especially from someone who has had and continues to have an excellent career and obviously is incredibly diverse and so that leads us also into this next question and and you can answer this uh jenny personally or professionally what's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already
2: Oh my gosh, so many things. I wish I could speak Korean. I'm ethnically Korean. I don't speak any Korean. And my grandmother gives me such a hard time about it. I just actually finished reading the book Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. I don't know if you've read it yet, but it was like one of like the National Book Awards. It's about Koreans um, during the Japanese occupation. It's like this whole thing about how Koreans who don't speak Korean. And it was like, oh my God, that's me. So that's one thing. (laughs) Um, And, and many other personal things. I think professionally, something that I want to get a lot better at is, and it's funny because we just got finished speaking about balance. I'm still really bad at it. So I block that 90 minutes on my calendar, but that's it. And like that, then the rest of the time I'm working really hard and I want to get better at, at slowing down. Um, sometimes my team laments the fact that I'm, I work so fast and I still have that frenetic energy. It's, I, it's kind of like my resting speed is, is like being on 10. And I'm trying to learn to slow down and be more intentional. And not only because it's wise, and it's good for long term decision making and systemic thinking to really take a 360 look at the big picture and not rush into big decisions sometimes you have to right sometimes you have to like we got to shift this we got to move like there's a global pandemic <laughs> we got to do it tomorrow but if you can um not everything has to be pants on fire and so i'm, I'm learning as um, i'm growing as a leader to really take pause and ask myself is the are there outside influences or a real reason that we're creating temporal anxiety around this project or can we slow it down does this need to be a 6 month timeline can it be an 18 or 20 month timeline and and what what's the how are, how are our parties impacted like is that going to create a negative ripple effect for our young people for our educators for our community and if the answer is no if they're like they're okay this is just going to go from like good to great then maybe it is better for us to slow it down and go from great to downright amazing. Like, let's let's do it a little bit more slowly and build something that's a lot more intentional and thoughtful. And I think for so much of my career, I, I delivered great things, but they could have been a lot better had I slowed down. So I'm, I'm learning to pause, slow down, take breaths. And I've realized that um, it's better for my team as well. So that's something I'm working on as a leader. Um, If anyone on my team is listening to this, I'm trying and (laughs) feel free to continue to give me feedback on how I'm doing. Um, But it's um, I think it's important. And I think that's still um, a lasting effect of my as being a young professional for me of like, I have to work fast, I have to work hard, I have to deliver in high quantity and volume to be recognized and to be validated. And I'm realizing more and more that it's, it's value, uh, it, it's quality over quantity.
1: Thank you for that answer. I will say that when we ask that question to leaders, the number of people who answer with, they wanna learn a language, something around the arts or they wanna fly is amazing so like we've asked that question to hundreds of people and it always boils down to learning a language doing something artistic like playing an instrument or uh learning to fly i do i want to point out though something here that you and i again joe said earlier but you're being very vulnerable even inviting your team to give you feedback there's wisdom in your um reflection on the fact that you know you're working all the minutes except for 90 of them and you're moving fast but you're asking the question about excellence versus getting the project done it brings us to our next question about your growth how did you how did you get that way in terms of speed and capacity what's the one thing that led to or continues to support your growth as a leader that others might be able to replicate because even though you see that as something that you're trying to dial back, I think there are a lot of people who would say, I really wish I could put another hour. I wish I could get a little faster.
2: I honestly think it's just the way my mother raised me. She was the type of person who's like, if you have something on your to-do list, get it done now and then you can relax. So she was the type of person who's like, Hey, hey, honey, I, you know, Jennifer, go just your room. You know, I always had chores growing up as a kid. Like when I was in fourth grade, I was like cooking dinner twice a week. So it was like, I think it's just part of like my, my, my pretend, my, uh, my specific family culture and household, the way I was raised. But it was like, all right, here's the six or seven things you need to do after school. Do them all now. And then you can just sit on the couch and zone out in front of whatever it is that you're watching with a bowl of cheese balls and no one's going to bother you. Or, you can get home, open that can of cheese balls and turn on, for me, it was Star Trek and, uh, and zone out in front of you know uh, the Starship Enterprise and just get harangued by your family nonstop. And then you're not even enjoying the show because you're just like, it's looming over you, the dusting and the getting dinner ready and doing your homework. And I learned that my mother was right. And it might just be my personality too, but like, I'd rather just get my, my to-do list done and then relax, because again, the relaxing is more relaxing and the to-do list is is out of the way. What I found is um, that is bad, that that's what I'm trying to not do, is that sometimes I'll finish my to-do list and I get sucked into a spiral vortex of like, you know, a to-do list are like gremlins, you get wet. Like it just like continues multiplying and you never get to the bottom of the list. Um, And so what I've started to do is like put a line, like I I have an actual to-do list. And like, I'm like, I'm going to do items one through seven. And when my gremlin list inevitably gets water on it and replicates, I'm sorry to your listeners who haven't seen the movie gremlin. That's now your homework. Go watch gremlins, the best holiday movie ever. Um, and, and I go from seven to 70 items. I still stop at seven. So I get those seven things done. I commit to doing seven things and then I stop. And then I open my cheese balls and turn on Star Trek and I feel good about it.
0: I just want to add that uh, Gremlins is a favorite in the Jones house, as well as cheese balls. So that that that's a a, a double hit. I, I was given advice, and this is actually from a colleague when I was a building principal. Very similar, Jenny, what you're describing. Candle at both ends were burning, um, but you know you're a high school principal. You're living at games. My my wife's incredibly supportive. And so I had an older colleague come up to me, very wise, and I truly appreciate this day and just simply said, you know what, Joe, that inbox is always going to have something in it. You have to learn when you've accomplished enough for the day. Um, And at the time was a teacher, so wasn't in a leadership position, wasn't on a cabinet or council, um, but was very successful. And so I appreciated that advice. And I I really like the idea, though, of setting a clear margin of what's acceptable on that list. And so if you have 70, I can get to this and then I'm good because it doesn't all have to be today. I, I really think that's powerful. And similar to what you're describing, Jenny, I still today will do brain dumps of everything and just create a mass to-do list and you know, really not even try to think, oh, that's a work responsibility. That's a home responsibility. I have found just unloading is an easy first step and I don't get in my way. I can really unleash that. So all wonderful advice for our audience. Our last question is an introspective question. I think it's perfect to end this, this interview. What's one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore?
2: I remember when I first went one-to-one in my classroom, I thought that I had to do everything on technology. I was a math teacher, as I mentioned. And I remember this one time, I was having my kids try and use um, tablets to be protractors. And it was probably one of the stupidest things I've ever done. But I was just like, we have, it has a protractor app. I'm gonna, like we have these devices, like I have to use it for everything. So I had them like drawing, using the side of their tablet to draw acute angles, and then using the app to try and take a picture of it and then open the app and then resize a digital protractor. And I think it took them close to 10 minutes to measure each angle. And you know, if you took a plastic protractor, it would take you like three seconds, right? And in my mind, I'm like, oh, no, this is so great. It's one tool. It's doing everything. I don't have to take out the protractors. They're always broken. It's the baskets. It's the passing out. Like, gosh, I could have passed out and taped every single protractor in the class for 36 kids, and they still would have measured the angles faster than they did it on their tablet. And I think, like, I sat at my desk at the end of that day and was like, I'm doing this wrong. And so just because I had technology in my classroom didn't mean that everything had to be done with technology. And so I, I began to, that's that, I think that was a turning point for me in realizing that the technology had to be, had to have like an intentional use and need. And it was the instruction and the learning that had to justify the tech and not vice versa. It had to be like, this is the need I have instructionally. And so that's why I'm using the tech versus. Um, I have to figure out how to use tech for this, for this lesson.
1: That is fantastic. I'm going to note for our listeners, you just heard it here that the global head of education impact at Google just recognized that the tech is a tool. It's not the end all be all. And the protractor is also a valuable tool. We got to pick the right tools for the right scenarios in our classrooms. And it's a final, it's a great final point. And this has been a fantastic interview. And what I really like is Joe and I always say that leadership might be complex. It doesn't have to be complicated. And you've just unraveled a lot of that for our listeners. And so into really some some things that are big, big rocks, but also somewhat simple if we can figure them out. Is there anything else, Jenny, that you would like to add today for the listeners? Or even for your team who might be tuning in.
2: No, I mean, I think that that's just something that we're double clicking on at Google is like, we my team is the education impact team at Google. And, and so we have the product team who builds the product, the marketing team who tells the stories and, and makes educators like yourself aware of new things that we build, Right our sales team who helps you get it into your hands, but my team is really about like, is what we're doing impactful for teachers, learners and the community at large. And that's what we wake up and go to bed thinking about every night is is the impact our tools are having on teaching and learning. And so, you know, I just wanna say thank you to the educators out there who give us tons of feedback all the time, it helps us be better. And we're looking at ways to like improve our resources and communities to help all of you, um, you know, really double down on that impact you're creating. And so. So again, I will stand by what I said, and I know that all of my colleagues at Google would too. We just make tools. The educators are the actual practitioners in the in it. Like a Chromebook without teachers is just a piece of metal and plastic. Um, so we, you know, we just want to make sure we're designing for you and for your students. Um, and please keep giving us the feedback because it helps us be better.
1: Thank you so much, Jenny. There you have it another great podcast. Don't forget to follow the blog at the Schoolhouse 302 for blog posts, podcasts, and video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed this One Thing series on how educators can be more innovative and so much more. Thank you, Jenny, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days?
0: What's that, TJ?
1: Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep.
0: I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about you know, getting a good night's sleep, but you know, do tell how do we go about getting better sleep?
1: Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend ghost bed, our sponsor with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleeping and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed.
0: That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you.
1: And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the schoolhouse 302, You get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout.
0: Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest.
1: Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code. At ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral if you get somebody else a good night's sleep. Better sleep for you, better leadership. Ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com.